Hey everybody, welcome back to Passing the Torch. We hope you enjoyed last week's episode. I'm Mia Cunningham and I'm here with my co-chair Isabel Cagoo. And today we have a really exciting episode with a really exciting guest that we will introduce later on. Okay, so I guess we'll just jump right into the news. A lot has happened this week, let me tell you. So first, this week, the New York Times broke the news that Russia offered bounties to Taliban fighters to kill U.S. troops. This straight up sounds like something out of a book. Like, it is so absurd and crazy. And when I first heard it, I was like, there's no way this happened. Um, But as the week progressed, more and more stories and... Um, news outlets were breaking more news regarding this matter. Um, And in response, President Trump claimed that he was never briefed on this problem on the Russian bounty placed on American soldiers. But according to many of the reports, um, some have stated that Trump could have been briefed on the matter as early as March 2019 which is more than a year ago, and nothing has been done that we know of. Um, So that was definitely the focal point of all the news this week. Also, in more Tennessee news, um, so we're we're recording this actually on Wednesday, uh, July 1st, and a couple hours ago, Governor Bill Lee um, released a statement saying that he supported removing Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Grand Wizard of the KKK, um, that statue, because there is a statue of him, uh, of a bust, <laughs> from our state capitol building. So hopefully that will be removed. That's not like a definite um, statement, but definitely progress. So hopefully that can be removed as early as next week. Also, I think it's important to mention that COVID cases, especially in the South and in Tennessee, are on the rise. This is because people are not wearing masks and going out. And ironically, actually, Governor Cuomo in New York released a statement a couple of days ago saying that people from certain states, Tennessee was included in them, and that list will have to be, um, well, people visiting New York from these states, list of states, including Tennessee, will have to undergo um, a 14-day quarantine, which is just crazy, um, But really, all over the country, we are seeing an uptick in cases. So, all you guys, just make sure if you're going outside, social distance, wear a mask, please, for everybody. Just do it. But that's about it for the news. So, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, who is a field organizer for Joe Biden, um, Cormac. Hello, Uh, Can you briefly explain what your role is on the Biden campaign? Sure. Glad to be here. So my job is basically in charge of everything volunteer related, everything that has to do with direct voter contact. So I'm the person who's giving people phone calls, who's messaging people on Facebook, who's um, organizing groups of people and teams of volunteers and um, knocking doors, lots of that, and basically doing all the the contact and the on-the-ground stuff that um, that people like to refer to as the ground game for campaigns. I'm just curious, but how has your role changed since the pandemic, since going, like, virtual? Sure. So a little background. I 
Um, I've been a field organizer for Biden since October. So uh, I started early October in Iowa. That was pretty different because in addition to doing all the regular volunteer stuff, we also had to have precinct captains and train precinct captains. So that was a lot more involved because you needed someone who was sort of a representative for Joe Biden in each one of the precincts I was in charge of. Um, but basically after that, I was sort of thrown around in different states as their primaries happened. And uh, what we did was a lot of door knocking, a lot of phone calls. And, you know, in each of those things, you're sometimes trying to convince voters to, to vote for Joe. Sometimes you're trying to get them to mail in their ballot in this case. Um, but other times you're just trying to get them to go out to vote. Um, and other times you're trying to get them to volunteer. If it's, you know, a little bit farther away and you want to sort of build up a volunteer network, you're starting to ask them how they can help and try to get them plugged in, I guess. Um, so basically that was what it was before. Um, and a lot of the cool part about Iowa was because I was there for four months, I guess, um, I had the opportunity to basically build up a volunteer network and I had, um, you know, my people who I could be um, having a good relationship with. I called someone the other day, one of my best volunteers, because it was her birthday. So, you know, I'm still in contact with these people. Um, and that is a lot harder to do when you're virtual <laughs> because you still can. Um, we still do our best, but a lot of what's changed now is the relationship building is all on the phone or on Zoom meetings. So I guess in the place of door knocking and phone calls, we just do phone calls now that it's online. And additionally, we have virtual meetings in the place of physical meetings. Um, so the virtual meetings are Zoom meetings, Google Hangouts that are sometimes volunteer trainings, sometimes they're a policy discussion. We had a really cool Juneteenth event that happened uh, the other week with two community organizers um, in the area. So it's, it sort of varies, but the stuff we're doing is all stuff that you can do from home. Um, and it's similar to what we'd be doing in person, I guess, minus the door knocking, minus the office. Very cool. So we wanted to ask you some questions kind of to get things started. We just kind of want to know a little bit about you. And so can you explain like why you got into politics in the first place? Sure. So I'm a big geography nerd. That's sort of how I started. I um, remember as a little kid, you know, reading through almanacs and um, memorizing all the countries of the world and their capitals and, you know, a lot of political geography stuff. And that got me into international relations. So I took a semester um, off to do a semester school in, in DC, my junior year of high school. And that was a really cool opportunity um, where basically we got to have each week as a different case study on a certain international or uh, national political issue. So we did Israel-Palestine. We talked about um, the NRA gun rights, all, you know, gun control, that issue. Um, we had, you know, a policy paper that we wrote on Myanmar and the Rohingya crisis there. And that was a really cool intro into not just the international side of things, but also the domestic political scene, I guess. And that got me more interested in all of that. Um, and then I wanted to take a year off after graduating high school, which I did in the spring around this time last year. Um, and I wanted to work on the most critical election of our lifetime. So I chose a candidate. I like Joe the best and, uh, 
yeah, I've been working for him for now nine months, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, and what drew you to Joe in particular and the Biden campaign? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I spent a lot of time thinking about who I wanted to work for. Um, I've, you know, I've liked Joe since he was vice president. Um, and beforehand, I mean, it, it also was a lot of learning for me about each candidate so that I could make sure that I picked the one that I liked, not just based on what they were proposing, but also their history and what they'd done. And I am from New York City. So it's a very liberal place. My high school is extremely liberal. Um, and not that it was a bad thing, but it sort of, especially after Trump was elected, which was, I guess it would have been my sophomore year. Um, it, I saw how the school sort of tore itself apart and people resorted to yelling matches and like shouting down opposition opinions and even being moderate on an issue or, you know, thinking something different than what everyone else thought was sort of frowned upon and even academically and with the teachers and all that stuff. Um, and that made me want to work for someone who believed in unity, who believes in getting things done. Um, because on in, in national government, you can't accomplish things without trying to compromise or at least striving for the biggest thing and, and you know, working to get the thing that's a little bit further in that direction. Um, and I'd seen that Joe had done that over the course of his career, um, whether it was getting the Violence Against Women Act, the Affordable Care Act, um, the cancer moonshot, on a whole range of issues, he's been able to pass progressive change by working with people who he may not, he may not agree with, he may completely disagree with them on a lot of things, but um, I know that he's fought for that stuff for his entire life, and that ability to unite people, to bring people together, was something that really drew me to him. I think above all the policy stuff, and of course it has to do with the policy stuff too, I agree with him a lot on a lot of the policy stances, but that was the, the sort of overarching theme of unity and um, actually bringing people together to have dialogues to go forward instead of to continue to butt heads. And um, and he's he knows people, he has the relationships, he has that experience. Um, and I think it was just confirmed when I went to Iowa because uh, there I got to see him in small town hall settings um, and got to listen to the way that people who supported him since 88 talked about him. And he is unmatched one-on-one. -on -one. I think he has the ability to connect with someone like you've never seen before. Um, just that empathy and that compassion that is, of course, it sort of manifests itself in the policies that he's fought for and that he wants to fight for as president. But that is something that I didn't really see before and that I got to see up close. Um, I got to see how much he cared about hearing people out and just listening. I mean, that guy, you, you have a conversation with him and he is giving you full eye contact the entire time, undivided attention. Um, he really cares. And that's obviously hard to measure, but that's that further confirmed why I, I was doing everything I could for him. Wow. Well, I mean, I definitely relate to you um, on why you kind of chose Biden, because I know probably Mia can agree to this, too. But I chose Pete for the same reason, because I saw him as like a uniter. And that's something that our country really needed, well, actually needs right now, especially. Um, and that's why, like, we're here supporting him now. Um, but I know that you said it's not all about politics, but I am curious, was there a specific policy that 
really like drew you in even more to the Biden campaign or even maybe after you started working on the campaign, it came out and you're just like really excited about that. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think obviously I think everyone has work to do on, on learning specific policy stuff. And I think that is something I learned actually was a lot of the times the broad stroke stuff resonates a lot more with people because it's, it's hard to go into the nitty gritty and, you know, understand all the intricacies of everything and it's much easier to relate to someone based on how you personally feel um you know i i think expanding the affordable care act and that was that was something that i guess resonated with me um i had back surgery recently and like had to deal with all of that and then uh you know seeing how other family members have paid medical bills i mean it's just crazy how much we are paying in this country for a system that clearly based on the last few months doesn't really work that well. Um, and so him fighting for expanding Obamacare, um, you know, making sure that it covers people with um, pre-existing conditions that we protect that part of it, but also that um, we allow people to opt into a public option like it. Um, and maybe that eventually gets us closer to a place where everyone has good quality care. That was something that really resonated with me. I think also the environmental plan sort of combined with some of the rural plan, which he talked about in Iowa a lot, you know, having um, more clean energy in rural areas, having rural America lead. I was in um, Sioux City, which is the fourth biggest city in Iowa. Um, it's about 80,000, 90,000 people. Um, but, you know, you drive 10 minutes outside of the city and you're in farmlands. So, um pretty rural, especially compared to New York City. And he talked a lot about how rural America can lead with the climate revolution. And so it's, you know, it's not just about joining the Paris Climate Accord. It's also about investing in um, soil technology that can um, that can capture carbon and, um, and wind technology and solar. And um, I guess that was that was part of it as well. Yeah, so kind of going back to what you said about why you um, supported Joe to begin with, um, Isabel kind of mentioned how she was a Pete supporter. I was also a Pete supporter. And, um, you know, just I think when Pete dropped out and then endorsed Biden that night um, when Biden was getting all the endorsements from Pete and Amy and Beto, it really did show, um, you know, how he was a uniter. And, and so... That's definitely one of his strongest um, appeals. But um, speaking of Pete, I'm sure you saw that a couple of weeks ago, Joe came out with his Joe Code, um, very similar to Pete's Rules of the Road. So I was wondering if you had a favorite Joe Code. Um, I feel like I have to say no more, but... Uh... <laughs> But I guess yeah. after Pete's, uh, I think Compassion is one of the ones on there. Yeah, but probably. I think that that means to me not just compassion and being able to talk to people and relate to people. And I saw that. I mean, I, I was in South Carolina on election night when we finally had won, and it felt it was amazing. And he gave the best speech of his campaign, and you saw the compassion he had, I mean, I was in tears by the end of his speech because he was able to talk about loss and grief and moving forward and uniting people in this campaign 
that was for all the people who've been knocked down and left out. And that's sort of that kind of compassion. But I think compassion also comes in policy, um, you know, like protecting Roe v. Wade and, um, and uh, making sure that we have affordable health care and quality education, access to pre-K, you know, an immigration system that's easy to navigate and that doesn't lock kids up in cages. I, all that stuff is compassionate policy. So, yeah. Yeah, um, compassion is definitely something I feel like Joe has shown throughout really his whole career. Um, so that's definitely a really good one. Um, so I guess this is basically the main, um, question of the interview. And so, so you're a young person, you're going into college, and you've done so much with Joe's campaign. So kind of, can you just kind of explain your experience, like as someone who is young, um, just, you know, really working so closely with a campaign? It's been super, super cool. I, uh, I basically picked up my stuff. I moved to Iowa. I was, you know, in my, the spirit of a gap year, I guess I just wanted to have an adventure and I was willing to just sort of grind and work as hard as I could to, um, to have the full experience, obviously also to elect Joe. Um, but I was in it for both of those reasons. And, uh, that made it cooler because I was just sort of seeking out more stuff. How can I be better at this? How can I meet more interesting people? Um, how can I like maximize the experience I'm having? Um, so it was cool. I got to Des Moines, Iowa, um, on would have been late September, I guess. I was there for about a week. But on the first day that I was there, I arrived as a fellow, which was like an unpaid um, internship type thing. And I was, would have been in headquarters. But on the first day there, I'd gotten a call that I'd, I'd gotten a job, which I was sort of in the process of getting at the time. And it's super cool. The campaign is arranged into different regions. I had a great boss, great people that I worked with. A lot of the people working are young people, either just out of college or a few years out of college. So it was also cool. You know, everyone likes to have older friends, but I think you, it's cool when you're sort of the, the young person, the younger young person that, that everyone's, uh, you know, sort of making fun of a little bit, but also friendly with and, um, you know, helpful in treating sort of like a, a younger sibling or something like that, especially on a campaign where we're working, I don't know, 80 hours a week or something. It was, it was up to that and you don't really have time outside of work, um, so a lot of people, it becomes a lot closer than you would um, with other coworkers and other types of jobs. Um, so it was really cool to have that kind of community um, with my region in Iowa. And then as we moved from state to state, so after Iowa, I went to Las Vegas. And then I was in Rock Hill, which is a suburb of Charlotte, but on the South Carolina side. Um, and then I was in St. Louis. And then I was in Chicago for a day before COVID hit. Um, COVID made us go home and uh, in each one of those places they sort of rotated a little bit who I was with um, so there were some people who I'd gone to two or three places with some people who I'd just been in one place with um, and it, that part was really fun getting to know different people um, I think you notice that people are coming from lots of different walks of life obviously everyone's into politics but some people are doing it just because they want to work this election 
and other people are doing it because they want to have a career as uh, someone who works in the organizing department or on campaigns. There are definitely people who worked on multiple campaigns, um, but also a ton of people like myself who are first-time uh, organizers and first-time political, fully involved type of thing. Um, so it's been super, super cool, and it really was maturing, I guess, because I was in Iowa, you know, by myself away from my family, um, but not really lonely at all because I was so busy, but also you, I met so many interesting people, um, the people who worked on the campaign, but also a lot of volunteers that I got to build relationships with. And the people I stayed with, um, because we had a thing called supporter housing, so I didn't rent an apartment, I just stayed um, in this couple's basement. And <laughs> they were super nice to do that. Um, there are a ton of people who do that. It's an awesome thing to do. It's sort of a crazy thing to do coming from New York where, you know, people are a lot ruder than that. <laughs> um, at least hourly. Uh, but I got to stay in their basement and got to talk to them every day. And we became very close. Um, and I still text and call them pretty regularly. And that part of it is really cool because you're living sort of independently, but you're also meeting new people, seeing new things. I mean, I, if you told me that I would be um, driving multiple hours through farms, you know, <laughs> a few months beforehand to get to, to have one conversation with one voter to like knock 10 doors or something, I would have said that's a little nuts, but it's been very, very cool because you're sort of doing it for the moral purpose, right, of electing a leader who is going to advance this country and is going to save democracy in this case. Um, but you're also doing it for the fun of meeting new people, having interesting conversations. Like, this is at the heart of what politics is, is it's about people. Um, you get to see that when you're the one who's interacting with the people. I didn't talk to high-level donors and... Um, you know, high-level politicians, I talk to just people, and you get to meet a lot of really cool, interesting people with cool stories um, and with interesting perspectives that you've never heard before. Okay, I guess I have a question. Um, so you've talked a bit about Iowa, and I was just curious how it how did you like move on after the Iowa loss? Cause that was pretty terrible um, yeah. to put it lightly. And it must've hurt. Cause I know when Pete didn't do too well, like I was not even that involved, but like I was like heartbroken. Um, yeah. So how did you like deal with that? Given that you spent so much time in that place um, and how did you maybe use that energy to propel yourself forward um, and onto bigger and better victories? Yeah. So I had a really cool experience in Iowa and I loved almost every part of it except for that last day, the last night specifically. <laughs> um, I was in a precinct where um, we had barely enough people to be viable and it was somewhere where I had, I had a list of people who were supposed to show up for me. I had knocked on the door or a volunteer had called them and it was like 50 people and I had maybe 15 in my corner 
And of those 15, seven or eight of them, I had to convince when they were walking in to join us. So they weren't even people who we'd identified as supporters. Um, so that was brutal. I mean, you're, I was like, why did I, why did I put on all this effort? Why was I working um, from 10 a.m. to midnight, you know, a lot of days uh, to do what seemed to be very little to impact how this went. Um, and I thought that it, that experience was similar to a lot of other people. I, granted, I was also in a precinct of mine that did worse than average. Um, but yeah, it was, it was devastating. I, I was, um, I had 18 precincts in Sioux city. I won two of them. I think tied maybe four, five, and then Bernie won the rest of them. Um, so different than other parts of the state, you know, in more rural areas, I think Pete did better in, uh, urban areas, Bernie did better. Um, and that was, it was tough. I, we expected Bernie to come out with, um, if he could turn out his people who are his supporters, he would win. That's what we thought. Um, and, I was expecting us to be able to turn out our people too, because I had identified enough people to be able to win. And that just, it didn't happen and it sucked. And I was super upset about it that night. But I think I also knew that I had done almost everything I could to be able to, to get to where I was. Um, we, we got second in Sioux City and in Woodbury County, whereas we got fourth statewide. So I was glad that we outperformed our net our statewide average obviously there are a bunch of other factors that go into it and so i can't claim that it was my doing that we did um better than average but i do like to think that part of it was and you know and i know you had to train precinct captains i was glad that the two precincts that i won were places where i had really solid people who were very good at working the room and convincing people and standing up for their position and talking about why they supported joe um so that was like a little bit reassuring, but I, I guess I just pressed on again. It was, it was sort of part of the adventure of it. Like I was expecting a call to go to the next place and I was excited about that. Um, and I just sort of left it behind. I, I said, you know, I had a bad experience on caucus night. Maybe I wish I did this thing or that thing, but I can't really change it at this point. Um, I'm proud of how hard I worked it to get to wherever I was. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really matter, honestly, in, in terms of the results, which is a little bit discouraging, but I did learn a lot of good skills on how to talk to people, how to have an interesting conversation and, you know, how to convince people to do something. Um, and also just how to be an organized person and, uh, think strategically and just to, to work hard. So I guess I just took the lessons that I learned from that to, to the next place I went, which was Las Vegas. And, um, that was sort of the start of our turnaround was the Vegas caucus, um, the Nevada caucus. Yeah. So it was tough, but I think I wasn't too bummed about it because I was optimistic that we still had, you know, we were thinking we still have, uh, Nevada, we still have South Carolina. This is super early on, and we can still pull this off. So 
Wow, that's definitely very impressive. I don't know how I would have reacted in that situation. Um, but how was the overall mood in the campaign? Because I, it seemed like it was a pretty like tense couple of weeks between Iowa and up until South Carolina. Like, because after South Carolina, everything just exploded for you guys. But up until that, then, um, was it really like tense? Um, and how did you? stay or how did you and your um fellow organizers like stay motivated during that time yeah it was it was definitely tough i think that uh i don't know how many weeks it was maybe two weeks stretch between the iowa caucus and the nevada caucus that was sort of the most difficult time that was sort of rock bottom from our campaign i remember after losing the new hampshire primary pretty badly when I was in Nevada, but we were just watching the results come in. And that was really tough. There were people, I think, who were just, you know, very pessimistic, like, this is almost over. We don't know what will happen. We're banking on doing at least somewhat well in Nevada to be able to even continue, which is, like, it was crazy. I mean, we were supposed frontrunner for um, up until maybe a few weeks before the Iowa caucus. And... It was crazy to think that that had happened so quickly and that we'd, you know, gotten to the bottom so quickly. But I don't know. I think we just, maybe it was habit that people are just so used to just going out and knocking doors. It was definitely passion for the candidate. It, a lot of people, you know, I, I still stood by him. I still thought that we had a, a decent chance of at least continuing. I mean, at that point, you didn't really know, but, um, I still love him as a candidate, and I, I still thought he was the best choice. I think um, I didn't forget what we were trying to fight for um, and what all the work was going to mean eventually. Um, so I guess, yeah, we just picked up a few more canvassing packets and, um, and kept going. But I, it's definitely not a, a heroic thing. I mean, we were, we were just... I, some people were probably fighting for their jobs because you, if he drops out, then you lose your job. So um, that was part of the calculus for me, but I think it was also I was uh, used to just doing the best I could um, in Iowa because I'm also very competitive. I just wanted to have better numbers than everyone else did. Um, <laughs> I'm a twin brother, so I have uh, and I have two younger ones too. So it's sort of second nature to just want to be the best. Um, <laughs> but I guess that was that was part of the motivation too. But there were definitely times when we just talked with um, between each other and like had that it just had a, a really real discussion like our campaign needs to be this and this and we're not doing this and we should be and that's why we lost and this whole program is not what it should be. But I do think that there was above us in levels that we couldn't really see or, you know, we didn't uh, hear about it necessarily, but there was a plan and people had their heads screwed on straight um, for what they were supposed to do going forward. Um, but it, it's always helpful to just be able to talk to people. That's a, another part of the good close relationships thing is you can have people who you talk to, and I talk to all the time about work-related stuff, you can just sort of vent about something and that's it's very helpful in anything but um especially when you're frustrating with how something's being run that we don't necessarily have control of 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask? So, um, what was? How did the energy change among you and other organizers? Because Nevada was kind of the turning point. Then he went on to win South Carolina, and then he just blew it out of yeah. the water on Super Tuesday after racking up a lot of endorsements. So, how did the energy of the campaign change, like throughout that time? It was it was really crazy. Um, so I flew to South Carolina a week before the primary, after the Nevada caucus, um, and was there for a week. We were canvassing basically exclusively, you know, all day. Um, and I felt you could feel the difference in in who the voters liked. Just you know you. You're knocking on doors. I think it took me a few days before I even got someone who wasn't supported by it. Um, and that was crazy. I mean, in Iowa, you'd be happy if you got two supporters or three supporters in a day, and maybe you convinced someone who was completely undecided to now be sort of leaning towards you. Um, and that would have been a fine day. You know, you, we didn't expect people to be so so supportive right up out of the gate and that happened in south carolina um which was crazy i mean you knock on a door you'd be like who are you planning on supporting and they go oh, of course i'll support Biden." like who else and that was really crazy so we sort of felt it beforehand but that night in columbia when he gave the victory speech we were in rock hill which is about an hour away so we drove down and on that drive um we started right as polls closed and as soon as polls closed, you know, everyone's checking their phones to see the results. Um, and as soon as polls closed, we had the radio on too. And we heard immediately Joe Biden wins. And that was, like, I'm getting chills talking about it because it was just so cool. Like, we're, we're sort of driving down to this victory celebration of, like, a revived campaign almost. That's what it felt like to us. And it was to me. Um, and then that speech he gave... And the energy in the room, and you know, having Rip Clyburn introduce him, that guy saved us a lot of um, a lot of the primary because it was something like fifty percent of, of South Carolina voters made their decision based on his endorsement, meaning they voted for Biden because of him. And he gave a phenomenal speech, and then Joe walked on there, and it was just a totally different energy. I think he. In previous appearances that I had seen of him, he talked about the issues. He went sort of in depth and made it great, but he didn't have the same kind of power because it, it was we'd be talking to a lot of undecided voters. It was in Iowa, you you had maybe our events were fifty percent supporters and then fifty percent other candidate supporters who just wanted to see him, but a ton of undecided people as well in that in that other half. Um, and so he's he's not necessarily preaching to the choir. It's not a the same energy as a victory speech um and that kind of feeling of um of determination and of um triumph that he had in that speech especially in the structure of it even like in the beginning he sort of talked about uh as far as i can remember at least <laughs> he talked about um where we had been in you know the last few weeks and and then talked about his personal struggle um, after losing 
his daughter and wife and then his son later on and dealing with grief and moving on and finding termination in life and then more into talking about you know this campaign is for you if you're knocked down if you don't have someone advocating for you i will be that person um and i'm you know as uh what Clyburn said most importantly joe knows us um you know we know joe but joe knows us it was this i guess and he ended it with just a really powerful like basically go forth and we're going to win this thing because of the stuff that we've overcome and i usually don't like the sort of theatrical political stuff but when you're in it and you're fully there and i believed what he was saying and you could feel how genuine it was that was so so cool i was i had chills the entire speech i was crying and looked around and other people were crying too i think you you felt the power of that um and then of course the next it was basically like a long weekend i don't know a few days until super tuesday um we had this crazy string of um people ending their campaigns and endorsing us um and then i remember because i have a good friend from iowa who's in texas and you know they were doing the endorsement speeches uh in, in dallas i believe um with pete and amy and someone got better to join too um and we were on the road from south carolina to st louis we were driving like blasting music and watching all this stuff come in um and it was the craziest feeling it was like we were we're it, we knew sort of we were going to win this thing it, it felt like it felt right and it felt almost freeing i guess um and really gratifying in that we we've known that we put in the work and we've done what we could and this was the outcome it was really really cool um so i can only assume that that's what the rest of the campaign felt we had we have you know weekly calls or bi-weekly calls or something like that regular um correspondence with everyone else and that was the energy on those calls too but i think a lot for a lot of people it was this personal uh feeling of of satisfaction and triumph and um victory <laughs> i guess uh because from that point on it it was i guess sort of a lot clearer that we were going to be on top wow so that, that well, I mean, especially the speech when you're just describing it, it sounds like such an amazing or like top campaign moment for you. Um, and we were just wondering, were there any like other memorable or like top or even funniest campaign memories that you have? Yeah. Um, let's see. That one's pretty hard to beat, but actually, yeah. the one. Um, so, Sioux City. Like we had, I got there early October. Um, they had an event with Joe. He comes to speak during the summer, I think in July or August. It was a super hot day outside, and the event was outside. And there were a ton of people who showed up. I think it was like four hundred people, which for Iowa was really big for for our crowds, um, especially when you have all these candidates who were there. Um, and it was one of our biggest events, at least early on. And it was 
apparently unbearably hot. People like had sort of an okay experience. He was good speaking, but it was just too hot. <laughs> that was the only time that he'd been there um, when I had gotten there. And everyone was like, he needs to come back. We need to see him again. You know, Iowan voters want to see the candidates multiple times um, and be able to meet them in person. Uh, so it was super cool that he eventually ended up coming back. And it was, I think, in, it would have been like late January because it was only a few weeks before the caucus. And initially we had it planned for one day and then a snowstorm happened on that day. So we spent, you know, they only gave us notice maybe a week in advance. Sometimes, actually, a week is pretty generous. Usually it's like three to five days before an event happens, even with, um, with the man himself. <laughs> uh, you don't really learn about it until right beforehand because they're planning everything and they're trying to figure out the schedule and all that. Um, so we've been building for it is what we call like recruiting people to, to join and to, to go um, to see him speak for almost a week, and then we figure out there's a snowstorm that gets canceled, we have to call these people that it's canceled, we don't know if it's going to be rescheduled. Um, so that was sort of brutal, that we'd spent all this time, you know, getting excited ourselves and getting other people excited about seeing finally, and then we had to cancel it, but then they rescheduled it um, for even closer, obviously, to the, to the caucus, and we had bigger turnout than we expected. I remember walking into that room where it was supposed to be and there were so many seats. We, didn't, we were like, I don't know if we're going to be able to fill these. We'd spent as much time as we could recruiting for it, but it was just this massive room. We were a little bit nervous about how it would look if we couldn't fill all the seats, but that was not even a worry. As soon as people started rolling in, um, you know, almost standing room and he gave a great speech and great address, but actually the most memorable part about it was I was working with a girl who went to my high school, actually, also taking a gap year um, before college. She, she just texted me. Um, but <laughs> so we're really, really good friends because of it. She was in Sioux City for uh, eight months before that I was there. And we worked together really closely because she had, you know, precincts that were right next to mine. So we had the same office, same, you know, volunteer relationships, all that stuff. And she was the one who was introducing him. So one of the cool things about what we do is we can give a field pitch, which is like the, the call to action that happens at the beginning. So normally you have one of us who gives, um, maybe it's like a one or two minute speech on why we support Joe, why they should support Joe, and why they should commit to volunteering. And then the person introduces him, who's usually it's a, a local um, elected official or, you know, big name person in the town, uh, and then he goes on and speaks. Um, so she was giving the speech of, you know, of the rallying cry, basically, at the beginning. And it was so cool for me to be able to watch her. And I'm, like, I'm usually, selfishly, when other people are, um, you know, get a cool opportunity. I'm like, okay, I wish I could have had that. And you're sort of like, you know, I w you wish them well, but you're not really fully rooting for them. And that was that was drastically the opposite of what I experienced in that moment. Was just watching her like talk about why she was doing it and knowing how hard both of us had worked. Um, that was so so cool. Like I I felt so moved by her speech. Um, so 
and, and especially because it was like this culmination of everything that we've done. Um, I knew almost all of the people who came to our event because I talked to them at their door or I talked to them on the phone and I hadn't seen them. And I, I was like, oh yeah, Kenneth, you know, I talked to you four times on the phone, but you never came to the office or something. Um, or I was the, you know, a volunteer's um, spouse or, uh, or sibling or um, cousin or something who came and they introduced themselves. So it was like this very cool community thing where, you know, checking people in, you'd say, oh, hey, you know, I recognize you from that, or you're the, you know, talk to this precinct captain who's like your co-precinct captain for the, for the area, or hey, like we, I saw you at the local Mexican restaurant, um, which is called Wawa, it's really, really good, you need to go there if you're in Sioux City, um, but that was the cool part, was that it was this culmination of everything, and seeing her speak as the, like, the one who's been there for a long time, and been talking to these people, that was, that was really, really cool. Wow, that's so like beautiful. Now I want to take a gap year and go work for a campaign. I mean, well, technically I can't. I mean, I'm a rising senior, so I haven't finished high school, but definitely, definitely wish. Maybe in the future. Well, definitely in the future, I will be doing some campaign work. But um, we're almost done. We just have a couple questions left. And this is sure. something I'm just like really curious. And I'm not sure if you can answer this. I don't know. Um. But who do you think Joe will pick for VP? Um, and who do you think will be the best pick, personally? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, yeah. There are tons of really good options. I think everyone comes with their positives and their negatives, as in any situation. But um, this one in particular, is, I mean, it's hard. You're... Choosing a vice president in a time when the nation is in um, a pandemic and economic crisis and racial tensions are informed, or I mean, I shouldn't say that. I should say that people are pissed. People are, you know, and rightfully so, pissed at the injustices that have happened for hundreds of years and that have never fully been addressed. And you need to somehow pick someone that is going to have the experience to lead um, and also be able to appeal to different types of people and demographics and um, constituency groups that maybe Joe doesn't appeal to on his own. Um, You also need someone who's able to, similar to Joe, heal a country, bring a country back together and so it's tough. I I don't know. I, I think it seems to me that Kamala is the, the front runner right now, but I don't have any insider insider information, so this is all speculation. Um and I, I honestly don't know a ton about all the picks. But from what I know I'm a fan of um, Mayor Bottoms, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. She's pretty cool. Um, I also really like Tammy Duckworth. I don't know if those are potential or or what. Um, Elizabeth Warren sort of grew on me, honestly. I, you know, I was canvassing for a different candidate during the primary, and sometimes things would come up, and you'd have to sort of refute what she had said and so it's a little weird to be um supporting her now for vp but 
I don't know. I sometimes I, I think she'd be great. Other times I think other people would be good too. Um, I don't have a clear answer. I don't. I don't even know who. Like clearly, I don't even know who I really want. So. Well, I mean, I think there's still plenty of time. I'm not really sure when Joe's coming out with his VP. So. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay. To end the podcast, we have one more question and. Um, I just wanted to, um, ask you, what do you have to say to people who may be listening to this, who are still apprehensive about, um, voting for or supporting Joe Biden? Yeah. Um, this was a a crazy primary season. We had a ton of candidates, a ton of interesting opinions, perspectives, all that stuff. And, um, I think it's, it's really good that we've gotten to this point where we have a pretty united party this early on. Um, and I mean, it happened a month ago, two months ago, where everyone had sort of endorsed and thrown their support behind Biden, which was really, really cool. Um, but I think I'd start with the reason why I support him, which is, again, I think he has the ability to bring people together. And he's a progressive who can actually make progress. And, you know, I, I hear people who say that we need Medicare for all right now. I hear people who say that we, um, you know, need to be uh, abolishing police or, you know, fighting for uh, free education, free college for everyone. Um, I hear you. I don't agree with all of it, um, but I understand the sentiment. And especially for young people, I think we want young people are overwhelmingly progressive, especially compared to other generations. Um, and so I, it, it is different based on where you're coming from. So like if you're um, a lot more liberal and you're considering you know, either voting for Joe or not voting, or if you're more conservative and you're between Joe and Trump, um, it's different how you sort of convince people. Um, so I guess it depends, but I, I think... Is your question more focused on more liberal people who are not fully on board? Yeah, I guess more yeah. the the Bernie okay. supporters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'd say Joe and Bernie are, first of all, very good friends, but also fighting for similar things. I mean, Bernie wants Medicare for all. Joe wants to expand the public option to make sure that people get universal health care coverage. It doesn't have to be Medicare, but that everyone is covered. Um, and that people have healthcare that's affordable, um, and doesn't cripple them in debt. And both of them believe in uplifting the middle class. They believe in, um, equal justice for everyone in investing in education, especially in underserved communities and making sure that it is the equalizer that we say it is, um, in having a fair immigration system where People are not demonized because the system is too complicated or um, because they're different or they speak a different language or whatever it is. Um, fighting for environmental change, that's one of the biggest things for people our age, for, I mean, for everyone, but I think especially young people, we want to have a world that we can live in physically. Um, and Joe was one of the first people, I think the first person to introduce a bill on climate change um, back in the 80s or 90s. And 
has talked about climate change for a while, and so has Bernie. Both of them have been fighting for um, for environmental justice. If it's rejoining the Paris Climate Accord um, or rolling back some of Trump's Trump's cuts of environmental regulations, um, so I under I hear people who want more progressive change, but I've always thought that it comes from having someone who believes in fighting for progressive change and who can actually accomplish it. You look at the the Violence Against Women Act um, or the Affordable Care Act or, again, the Cancer Moonshot or um, the, being the first high-level politician to um, say that gay marriage should be legal. All that stuff that Joe has done and that he's fought for that more progressive people also fight for. And I, you can see that he's been able to pass a lot of this legislation to be able to get a little bit closer to the goals that, um, that at least more progressive people want. So that's the first thing I would say that they're, they're, they're on similar playing fields. They think a lot of the same ideas. Maybe they have different solutions for getting there, but they believe in the same ideals of fighting for equal rights for everyone and for affordable um, education and healthcare and for uplifting the middle class. And both of them come from those backgrounds too. And then if that doesn't work, which, you know, sometimes it does and and people are uh, not satisfied with that. I think you say, look at the contrast. It's America has a binary election. There's one choice or the other. I guess you'd say you could also not vote, but there's, unfortunately, the way it works, it's, um, there are two parties that are going to be able to win and you have to choose one or the other if you're going to vote. So, um, you look at the contrast between what Joe is fighting for and what Democrats believe and what Trump has done by tearing down, I think he's implemented like a hundred uh, he's t- torn down a hundred or rolled back a hundred environmental regulations. Um, he's separated families at the border. He said that people in Charlottesville were good on both sides and he's you know, inflamed racial tension and hate in this country. He's pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, pulled out of the Iran deal, pissed off all of our allies and gotten closer to all of our adversaries in the world. Um, and he's driven up the debt, by the way, if people care about that, um, and has just sort of obviously uh, bungled this coronavirus response and still doesn't believe in wearing a mask. I mean, what? It's, I think you look at the what he's standing for, or frankly not standing for, and the kind of hate that he spews and encourages and the stuff that he's trying to take away from this country versus the stuff that Joe has been fighting for his entire life. And even the stuff that he maybe, you know, caught on to recently, but he's, he has it in his plans. He has it in his vision. He's talking to people. He's changing his, his views to be more progressive. I think even over the course of this primary, um, adopted a little bit more progressive policies and stances, um, so I just don't know how you see that choice and think that not voting is the solution because 
I, maybe the theory is it's a, it's a protest you're not voting because both of them are not going to change anything. But if people are so anti-Trump, the solution to being anti-Trump is voting for Joe Biden. It's as simple as that. So it's, you know, we, we like to say, you know, F Trump and he's the worst and we need to get him out of office. But I think some of the narratives are, has shifted to, oh, it's time to focus on down ballot races. And yes, they're so, so important, but it's also time to focus on voting for Joe Biden because he is at, at the bare minimum, he is a, a vote against Donald Trump and but obviously that's not where I'd start. I'd start with at the maximum, he is a vote for better healthcare, better education, a more equitable, equitable criminal justice system, um, an environment that we can live in, better jobs. I mean, everything that's, that makes this country what it is, that's what he's been fighting for and what he will fight for. And if it needs to get to the point where it's just an anti-Trump vote, I guess that's what it's going to be. But, um, I think we convince someone by relating to what they're what they care about, and on every issue, Joe has had a history or at least plans for the future on that that emphasize that care and that um, ability to make change that people are going to feel tangibly affected by, um, and that's how you get someone, at least initially, to be supported. But it takes time too. People, it'll take time and that's fine. And there are people who are not on board. Um, but I think in this case, time is our gift. We have a president who continues to mess things up. You just give him more air time. So. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely very beautifully said. Um, and it's definitely something that we have been trying to ask ourselves because so many high schoolers and young voters or potential voters are more liberal. Um, and so that's, that is definitely something that comes up. Um, that was a really great answer. Um, but definitely, thank you so much um, for coming on our podcast. We had some great conversations. I loved your favorite campaign memories. Um, made me a bit nostalgic from, I don't know, campaign times. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much. <laughs>